He burst onto the late 19th century classical scene in a blaze of glory and was being hailed as the successor to Brahms and Mahler before he'd reached 21 years of age. The remarkable Richard Strauss is the subject of this interval feature here on Lyric FM, and over the next 20 minutes I'll be leading you through an overview of his life. I'll be doing it by concentrating on just a few works from that long and remarkable career in which Strauss stayed true to his own musical language, even though fashions were changing around him. Sixty years after that remarkable debut, he continued to compose in a rich romantic style, even though German culture, and to some extent his own reputation, lay in ruins. Something encapsulated most memorably in Metamorphosen for 23 solo strings, his heartbroken response to the destruction of Dresden by Allied bombs. For now, though, let's rewind to happier times and Strauss's precocious beginnings. After writing his first work at the age of six, he found composing pretty easy. Remarkably enough, he didn't have any formal music education, but there was one important role model in the shape of his father, Franz Josef Strauss, the brilliant, opinionated and cantankerous principal horn player in the Bavarian Court Orchestra based at the Opera House in Munich. It's no surprise that there are striking horn parts in almost every single one of Richard's orchestral scores. He was championed by the great Wagnerian conductor Hans von Bülow, became his assistant, and then succeeded him at the age of 21. It was then that Strauss began to write a succession of ten stunning tone poems, works on his symphonic canvas which paint a narrative picture. Take the stunning Till Eulenspiegel of 1895, for example, a vivid orchestral narrative which describes the outrageous behaviour of a real-life rascal who lived in Schleswig-Holstein back in the 14th century. It's the principal horn that represents Till himself, with a cocky, swaggering theme that reappears after each of his adventures. He gallops straight through a crowded market, creating havoc all around him, mocks the priesthood and debunks the pomposity of academics, pausing only to fall seriously in love with a beautiful girl, and when she spurns him, that only spurs him on to further mischief. Eventually, though, Till's misdeeds finally catch up with him. The authorities bring him to trial, he's found guilty and sent to the gallows. Have a listen to just a part of it. The way the young Strauss handles the instruments of the orchestra is simply breathtaking. Thank you. 
With the turn of the new century, Richard Strauss began to concentrate on the world of opera, with Zalome in particular really grabbing the limelight in 1905. Based on the Oscar Wilde play about John the Baptist and Herod's daughter, Strauss felt that it was a play that was crying out for music. Oscar Wilde had said that it was about the idea of the sinfulness of innocence. A story that starts with Salome's attempted seduction of John the Baptist or Yochanan and ends with her passionately kissing his severed head was never going to be easy to take for audiences or performers for that matter. Also no easy matter is the question of how to cast the title role, given that what Strauss asked for is impossible to find. He said that Salome should be sung by a 16-year-old princess with the voice of an Isolde. Zalome's first performance outside Germany turned out to be especially scandalous. On the 22nd of January 1907, Zalome opened at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York with a famous Wagnerian Isolde by the name of Olive Fremstadt in the title role. She went to great lengths to research her part, even going round to a nearby mortuary to feel how heavy a dead man's head actually was. Her on-stage stagger when she accepted Jochenan's head, was so convincing that a few members of the Met audience felt the need to head for the exits. And many of those that remained had to look away as Frenchstad kissed the head's bloody lips, lustfully described in Zalomi's chilling words as like a band of scarlet on a tower of ivory. Can there be a more shocking operatic kiss than this? Incidentally, it could be hard to square the intense emotion of some of his music with how Strauss regarded his work as a practising musician. He could be bafflingly self-effacing and down-to-worth. If you manage to track down some early film footage of him conducting his own music online, you might well be in for a surprise. As the orchestra plays its heart out, there the great composer stands in front of them, simply beating time like a bored bandmaster. And when Zalomi was praised for being unique as an opera, Strauss said that he could fabricate another one in no time at all. He composed it just like any jobbing craftsman would in between conducting engagements. So much for the image of the suffering, struggling artist. The laconic Richard Strauss left all the emoting to his characters on stage. Turn the clock forward five years or so and we find an opera of quite a different stripe. Der Rosenkavalier, written in collaboration with the poet and librettist Hugo von Hoffmannsthal. It's an exquisite blend of comedy, farce and romance, all set in a version of 18th century Vienna that never really existed. When the curtain rises on Act 1, Scene 1 of Rosenkavalier, we find ourselves in the lavish bedroom of the Marcheline, who's just enjoyed a night of illicit passion with the teenage Count Octavian. He's besotted with her in a way that words just can't begin to describe. Mm-hmm. 
Der Rosenkavalier is unusual in that it boasts three great and quite distinct soprano parts, in the Marceline, Sophie and Octavian. And for the best part of his life, Strauss had a long love affair with the soprano voice and one soprano in particular, that of his wife, Paulina de Anna, who he married when he was 20. He wrote over 200 songs, some of them expressive, others downright funny. In Hatz gesagt, bleibt nicht dabei, the third of his Opus 36 set of Lieder, for example, a girl complains that her father and mother are always giving her less than they promise. At least with her boyfriend, when he promises her three kisses, there's no way he's going to stop there. Back in the opera house, Strauss continued his ongoing relationship with Hofmannsthal, founding the Salzburg Festival with him in the 1920s, before continuing to compose operas as the political atmosphere became ever more poisonous in Germany. When Hitler came to power in 1933, Strauss found himself in an invidious position. Aged nearly 70 and a prominent cultural figure with many Jewish friends and colleagues, including his current librettist Stefan Zweig, and a Jewish daughter-in-law. Many leading musicians left Germany or were forced to leave. Not only did Strauss stay, he became president of the newly founded Reichsmusikkammer, even though Josef Goebbels was no fan of the composer. He said, Unfortunately, we still need him, but one day we shall have our own music and then we shall have no further need of this decadent neurotic. So to what extent was Strauss willfully colluding with the Nazis? To what extent was he just being naive? Perhaps he felt he needed to cooperate just to protect his family. During the war, Strauss settled in Vienna, where, from afar, he learnt that the Munich Opera House was destroyed in 1943, the building where Wagner's Tristan and Die Meistersinger were first performed and where his father had played in the orchestra, and perhaps even more painfully, he learnt of the destruction of the Zempa Oper in Dresden, which had staged the first performances of so many of his works. Strauss poured the pain he felt into the extraordinary Metamorphosen for 23 solo strings. Its quotation of the funeral march from Beethoven's Eroica Symphony in its final page, acting as an elegy for 2,000 years of German culture, now reduced to rubble.
Strauss spent the aftermath of the Second World War in Switzerland, where he'd gone to live for the sake of Paulina's health. He undoubtedly wrote the four last songs with her voice in mind, though he never lived to hear them performed. The texts of the first three are by the German poet Hermann Hesse, Frühling, Spring, September, September, and Beim Schlafengehen, Going to Bed. But I'm going to leave you with an extract from the final song, two words by Josef von Eichendorf. Poignant and beautiful, it depicts an elderly couple who've been through all the joys and troubles of life, thinking back to their lives together as they watch two larks flying in the twilight. As they look towards the setting sun, they ask themselves whether death has come at last. Yeah.